Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and today I am so delighted to welcome as my guest, Catherine Halpin. Catherine, welcome to my show. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much. This is sort of, I feel like an honor to be on your podcast. So, Oh, well, thank job. you. Well, the feeling is mutual. So we're going to have a great conversation today, I know. Let me first tell my audience a little bit about you before we jump into specifics. Catherine is the founder and CEO of the Halpin Companies. She founded her firm 25 years ago to fill a void that she saw in her career as a CPA. She has helped leadership and management teams increase their effectiveness in engaging each other and their colleagues, and this is key, without having to invest a significant amount of time or effort. Aren't we all looking for that? More importantly, her clients tend to grow two to three times because of the innovation that gets ignited from the new work environment created using her simple, practical approaches, which she has called and is now known as the Halpin Method. And another interesting fact about Catherine is that she's on a mission to help company founders move the needle on income equality by selling their companies to their A players. So there's quite a lot there to unpack and for us to talk about today, Catherine. But I want to start because um, you and I have had an opportunity to have a previous conversation and your background is quite unique. So I would love for you to talk a little bit more about your background, where you grew up, what that was like, and how it led to the work that you do today. Well, I grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi. That's on the river, don't you know? And I grew up, um, I went to elementary school in the 1960s. And when Brown versus the Board of Education made it to Mississippi 16 years after 1954, which is 1970, I was going into sixth grade. And uh, so I lived that. uh, And my parents were big social justice advocates, even in Mississippi at that time. And um, so it just had, I was just really influenced by both my parents about being involved in the community and, and being willing to make a difference. And because I had demonstrated so much leadership in our home for a variety of reasons I won't go into, but when I was eight, nine, ten years old, my daddy said to me one day at the supper table, hey, you could come on into the office with me on Saturday morning. <laughs> so I started going in on Saturday mornings when I was nine or ten years old. And I continued until I was a junior in college to be kind of like an indentured servant in his firm. He and neither he nor I knew how to negotiate expectations. And he really, I saw as a junior, he wanted me to go to college, but he didn't really have any commitment to me being a college graduate Hmm. (laughs) because that, that was just in the seventies in Mississippi. There just weren't that many women professionals So I concocted a plan. I got to um, Dallas and I finished my degree and I got my CPA license and I pretty much did everything a CPA could do and I didn't like any of it. 
and I really wasn't very good at it because I'm a people person. I want to stand around and talk to people and hear their stories and talk to the, you know, spend the afternoon with a client, you know, hearing their story. How did you make all this money now that we have here at two straws, we have to do your income tax return because it's so complicated. So I, uh, I spent uh, about 12 years as a professional young adult. Um, and then I, um, I said, I have to find something different to do. So that that's how I got here today. <laughs> so what inspired you to create your company as it existed, let's say when you started it and then develop the body of work that exists today with your business? Well, I didn't have much of a vision and I um, read a magazine article about business coaching and I said, what is that and how can I become one? So my original vision was to be a coach. And I signed up, I found in 1995, the summer of 1995, there were only two coach training schools in the world. And I found one of them and he didn't bother to tell me about the other one, of course. And um, so I signed up on the spot because I had looking, been looking for a graduate program that I could do at night. So it was an easy sell. It was a three year training program. We did our training over um, the conference call before the internet. It was called, it is still today in a very large school called Coach University, but now they have to call it Coach U. And the regulatory authorities ca caught up with them. So anyway, I became a coach and, and my spouse said, that's all well and good, but you got to keep your day job. And so I kept my day job for a year and a half. And then I went full time in January of 1997. And within six months, I would say, I was working with small business owners, say like 30 to 40 employees, a founder. And I would say to them, these are complicated issues and you should not try to make this decision in a vacuum. Let's bring your leadership team together and I'll facilitate that meeting. We'll brainstorm and then the solutions will be their solutions. They'll have buy-in and they'll be easy to get them implemented. So I started doing that in the summer of 97. And then by December of 97, I was brought in by a female CFO of an $8 million company here locally in Phoenix, and she said, I'm bringing you in to do succession planning. And I was like, succession planning? I, I don't know <laughs> if I'm qualified to do that. And she said, well, the founder's still bringing in 80% of the work, even though it's a 25-year-old company. And um, the bank's already notified me that they're going to pull our line of credit when I retire as a CFO. They didn't think there would be enough glue to hold it all together. So we just started, I just started facilitating about the challenge of the day. And they would mention people and I would say, well, Bob, you know, um, that's a problem. We have to, you know, we have to engage Bob more effectively. So the leader, the founder, he started meeting with his people, his senior uh, management team um, individually once every other week, theoretically, he wasn't always making it once every other week, but um, there were 22 of those, mostly male, but a few female within 90 days six of them had wonderful job opportunities in places like Toledo, Ohio. They self-selected out because he was engaging them so um, consistently. And he, he, he makes me and you look like a till of the hunt. He was just so soft and gracious. So he wasn't having any crucial conversations or fearless conversations. He was simply engaging them more consistently and more effectively. And so then over the next year, two more came to him and said they'd like to take sideways steps or even a step backwards. And that left 14. And those 14 grew his company from 8 million to 25 million because of this new environment. They felt safe to take some risk and experiment because they were engaged with him regularly. They knew they could keep him in the loop. 
And so you realized you were onto something. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, who knew they were going to grow their company by that, to, you know, 3X? I had no idea. So, so think about what happened there. Um, describe a little bit about what were the dynamics that changed there? You mentioned them feeling safer. Uh, but talk a little bit about what kind of transformations happened there. Well, that founder was unintentionally sabotaging his people. He was going to breakfast or lunch five days a week. Every day he went to a breakfast and a lunch. And um, he was, you know, former clients, prospective clients, and current, even the current clients. And in those current client meetings, he wasn't taking the leaders who were managing those projects for those clients. And so I helped him see, you're just sabotaging them. You have to, you have to take those guys with you. And um, so in the past, he had kind of been the hero. There would be a problem and he would get his hands dirty and help solve that problem instead of leaving that solution to the people that were closest to the project. So that was a big change. And then the interaction was huge. And then the younger people, they were all younger. And so they were more technologically advanced, more creative, more innovative. So they developed new products and services that, you know, none of us would have ever thought of. Mm. So that's just a few of the changes. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. Yeah. We just, it was, a, it was a, just a constant evolution of the roles. That's what we were focused on. Ah, okay. And, and to me, that relates to this whole focus you have of drawing out innovative ideas yes. from people in your work yeah. um, so that you allow for things, like you just said, that they haven't considered before. So... For someone who's a listener that needs to come up with innovative ideas based on what we've all been dealing with, with the pandemic, and we'll go deeper into some other things related to that in a little bit, but just thinking about this, how, how do, what can be done in a company with more than, say, five people where you want to foster innovative mm -hmm. ideas, but you yourself have been somewhat entrenched in yes. the past and in yes. how we've done things before what yes. do you do to help them kind of open their eyes and and move forward allowing well, innovation? there's a thousand things that can be done i always reference that ibm story about some executive had some salesperson and he lost it like an 80 million dollar engagement and the guy goes in to turn in his resignation and the executive says we just invested 80 million dollars in your training we can't possibly afford to lose you now and um and then the, another thing that i a story I tell them is this thing of a scientist think about how a scientist conducts an experiment they gather their data and they draw some conclusions based on what that data shows. And then they run some experiments to prove or disprove the, the theory that they've come up with based on what the data shows. And even if the scientist gets covered in black soot, they think it was a successful experiment because they learned. And they're like, well, let's get the team, go back to the whiteboard, look at all the factors we considered, and tweak those factors. And so when we do that in a business setting, I mean, unlimited ideas will come forth if people feel safe. But if they don't feel safe, they're never gonna. They're never gonna step up and speak up. Oh, I so agree with you on that. So, how do you guide the leadership team to create a safe environment? What do they need to shift from doing or to start doing? 
Well, they need to tell people that it's safe to fail. But if you're going to fail, fail fast so we don't invest a lot of money. You know, make bring some lightness and some humor to it. And then I really try, you know, coming from that accounting background and being bottom line oriented, I always try to get them to set up some parameters. What would be the parameters that you'd be comfortable with in letting this team on this project experiment? You know, how far out of the boundaries could they go? either dollar-wise or time-wise or quality-wise. And um, so if they have those parameters established up front and they've negotiated that, if the, the project management um, people on the team say, well, we can't, you know, we really can't fudge on this number, but we could fudge on this number a little bit. You know, if they go back and forth and negotiate those expectations, then uh, everybody's going to be able to sleep at night. And then no matter what happens, you know, and then they, and even if people get upset, then we can say, well, remember, we're just running experiments here. We, we don't know. Hmm. And another tip I give is to say how fascinating a thousand times a day. So, it, you know, most of us are like, oh, this guy's an idiot, or this is never going to work, or this is horrible. Um, we just, when anything comes up, just say how fascinating, because that alone removes all the judgment. And it's the judgment that puts up the brick wall between me and the other people. So if we remove that judgment, then that person, they might feel unsafe for a day or two, but they're going to come back and say, hey, Catherine, I had some ideas about how we could fix this. Wow. Judgment is so key. And, you know, I have seen for myself, if I become intolerant of the people around me, yes. I've learned over the years, I need to look at myself because I right. am, when I'm feeling the need to judge others, so there's something about me I'm finding intolerable. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, it always starts with us. It and it starts with the leadership team. The yes. So how do you help them get in touch with their own judgments? Because I think as soon as you can do I, not maybe as soon as, but when you are able to start doing that consistently, you become so much less judgmental of others. Oh, of course. I call it self-management, being able to self-manage. And a component of that is self-care, and a component of that is time management. I have an ebook called the Respond Not React Playbook. It's nine simple, practical time management habits. If you put them in place regularly, some not all of them every day, of course, but if you put some of them in place regularly, you'll get more white space on your calendar. And then you can take off an afternoon or, you know, go to your kid's soccer game or go for a hike or a biking expedition. I've had clients in Juneau, Alaska, and they all had, every company that I worked with in Juneau, firm policies. If the sun came out, we closed our doors. We're out of here because they have so few days with the sun, but they, they were committed to getting on the golf course, getting on their bicycles, you know, going hiking. They were committed to getting out in nature as much as they can. So the three things that I think are key to self-management, those one is the nine habits that I um, written about and two is getting in nature and third is getting your heart rate elevated when you get your heart rate elevated you get those endorphins released in your brain and you can just see things from the, a bigger picture yeah well I'm I so agree with you well on, on all three but especially nature I've mm -hmm. really learned what a healing effect yes has the restorative effect of that yes and, and so this whole idea of being able to be more um, responsive 
mm-hmm. and more open yeah. to right it. instead of being in reactionary mode if you're running from meeting to meeting to meeting all day then i can pretty much promise you you're in reactionary mode and when we're in reactionary mode someone else is controlling our destiny we're not in control of our destiny mm-hmm. well give some examples of clients where you have helped them make this transformation you mentioned that one but i know you've worked with so many over the last 25 years oh yeah it helps my listeners to really, you know, cement ideas when they can hear examples of exactly what was done to help someone move from a place that wasn't as effective to much greater results. Well, just a recent experience over this last year, I worked with this um, very uh, well-respected commercial real estate developer here in Phoenix. And he came to me with a big company, you know, not a big company, but a good sized company and some most importantly, some really notable projects. People really loved his projects. And um, guess what? He was still, even 20 years in business, he was still functioning as the project manager. So we've worked this year on him having that executive mindset, the strategic mindset. It's made a world of difference for him and his, and his firm. And um, I'm working now with a client in D.C. that has, in just a very short amount of time, just over the last month, has really been able to be what I call the strategic leader that brings out the best in other people. So he took a few difficult people and turned them around quickly. And um, I said to him last week when I spoke to him, you know, it's all dependent on you taking those walks and being out in nature and sitting on your patio and taking this strategic think time. (laughs) So really, uh, and, and even when I first started as a coach, I always reserved 10 or 15 minutes in every discussion to talk about how they were doing taking care of themselves. That's self-care. Yeah. And, you know, when you devote time to that, then in between your coaching sessions, I would guess that's on their mind. Oh, I know I'm going to have to talk to Catherine about this. Right. I better right. <laughs> do something. Right. Um, I think what you brought up is really important because, and I've seen this and I've read it over the years, that many leaders tend to be more tacticians Mm -hmm. than, you know, being focused on their strategic. Mm -hmm. And so you just gave two examples of people that it sounded like had been much more into the tactics. Mm -hmm. So what's required for them to make that shift to be a more strategic thinker, because that really is a different way of, of thinking and being. Oh, it's a big difference for all of us. The whole time I was an accountant, I was just you know, in reactionary mode all the time. So, uh, but one of the, of the nine habits, well, all these nine habits came out of my own life. And um, the first one I learned when I was um, about 19 years old, I, I must have gotten exposed to it at church. I can't imagine where else I would have learned about it. But, um, was this notion of taking strategic think time, having a little journal. And I talked to somebody on Friday who has a journal just, just for the thinking about thinking. What are the things I need to think about? Mm. Putting pen to paper and saying, you know, and so for me at 19 years old, coming out of that crazy household, and, you know, by that time I had over a decade worth of work experience, um, I, um, I could not really articulate what I was feeling about a situation. I was cheerful. I was optimistic. I was, everything's great with me. Yeah. If something need to be done. Let me do it. I'll get it done. So I would write the, I would start with, you know, how am I feeling physically? Cause 
if I could get in touch with my physical feelings, like I didn't sleep well or ate too much sugar or back then I was drinking sodas, um, I wasn't feeling well physically, then that would lead me into my emotional state of mind. You know, I'm overwhelmed or I'm agitated with my brother, Willie boy, or <laughs> I'm agitated because my dad did this and then that did that. And then I got, was late for my grandmother's party, you know? So, um, it helped me get in touch with those emotions. So in, in the ebook, uh, habits, um, seven, eight, nine are all different kinds of strategic think time. And in the first six, create the white space on your calendar. So then you can take that strategic think time that that strategic think time is what got me out of Mississippi. And it's what got me out of my unfortunate CPA career. And I take it every day, every day. I love that. Um, that it, because, you know, when we make appointments with other people, we pretty much feel committed to keep them. Yes. But yes. if we don't write this down on our calendar, it doesn't feel like an appointment or a commitment that we need to stick to. I can, I'm speaking for myself here as I of say course. that, because of if course. I have it blocked off, it's going right. to get attended to. Right. Exactly. But uh, Ann Richards, the former governor of Texas, I got to hear her speak after I left Dallas and, and, and we moved to Phoenix. But that was almost 28 years ago. It was right after uh, she came here to Arizona State University for a lecture series and we got to go. And she said that as women, we need to um, all have personal trainers. We wouldn't think of standing up our personal trainer, <laughs> but we won't go out, you know, and get on our bicycle by ourselves or we won't go hiking by ourselves. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. Well, it speaks to the need for, um, you know, an accountability yeah. person or coach or partner, yeah. whatever you want to call that individual, somebody we answer to. Right. Um, because a lot of times it's difficult to do that just for ourselves. So yes. somebody else to do that. Well, you have another ebook too, all about alignment. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a real book. It's published. Yes. Oh, it's on Amazon. For success, yes. And I want to talk a little bit about that with you. And yeah. I encourage folks to get that. And at the end of our conversation, you can tell them how, how. But what's interesting to me is you talk about different ways of creating that alignment, what mm -hmm. areas need to be aligned. So talk a little bit about some of those, because I think they're really... Well, the, uh, the, the first chapter in the book is the high cost of chaos and fear. So if you don't have the alignment, oh, and I have so many stories about things blowing up. It, when something's going to blow up, a, project, a strategic initiative or a project or a team, there are always red flags, always. But nobody is connecting those dots. And it's, well... Somebody is, it's a, called a frontline engineer, a frontline accountant, frontline IT professional. But those people are not necessarily able to articulate, but if they are able to articulate, they're often not heard. So, so there's those red flags, six years, six months, six weeks, six days in advance. So the first one is on the high cost of fear and chaos. The second and the third chapters are on self-alignment, your self-alignment of your mindset and then the, the, next, the third chapter is on self-alignment of your actions, taking actions based on your values and your strengths, taking on actions based on the expectations that you've negotiated with other people. Like in that, um, I see this so often, I'll facilitate an event and um, the people in that meeting will all agree on a plan. And then one of those people will go off message and off plan almost immediately. 
And uh, so we have to find ways to have enough structure so that people are accountable for staying on the plan. So, um, and then the fourth uh, um, chapter is on team alignment, how you can now um, create a vision that people can um, not only buy into and find compelling, but help see that the, how their role is important. I believe if people see how important their role is to the vision for the team or the company, they'll give you 250% of their effort and their ability. But if they don't see themselves as being important, they're going to be standing around the you know water cooler. Not that we have any water coolers these days, but they're going to be gossiping and complaining and doing the things that I used to do as a CPA. And then the fifth chapter is on organizational wide alignment. I've helped a lot of companies and organizations build that organizational wide alignment because that's really the bottom line. That's what it takes. We got to get everybody on the same page and we got to keep them on the same page. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I, I like the fact that you start with the individual first yes, and yeah. the team and then to the organization, because uh, I think too often people try to jump to, you know, the strategic plan yes. and what can we do as an organization without yeah. attending to the individual components. Yeah. Well, Bill George, the former CEO of Medtronic, and he, now he's a, um, lecturer at Harvard and he's written a bunch of books. I've read most of them. Um, he says when he saw a leader not be successful, it was never because they failed to lead their team. It was always because they failed to lead themselves. Oh, interesting. Is that beautiful? And that's what I did as a CPA. I was, I was leading myself. I thought everything was urgent and I was the best person to do it. <laughs> yeah. And no self-leadership. Or, or just random, you know, intermittent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the different areas of focus you have in your book. Let's let's spend some time because so many people are still several months in dealing yeah. with the effects of this pandemic. Yeah. Whether they've been, you know, ill or not, mm -hmm. their work has been dramatically altered uh by this and i know that you've got some real experiences and insights that can be valuable for my um listeners one of them is around this whole thing of feeling isolated mm -hmm. because now i've been working from home for nine years so it's not been an adjustment for me in my work day but for people who were used to drinking a cup of coffee with a coworker first thing in the morning or a group of people and having in-person meetings um what are you seeing in in terms of what they struggle with and how are you helping them deal with that well from an individual level i just tell people isolation is never the solution never the solution Find a walking buddy. I have one client in Dallas who's, you know, got two or three um, gals in her neighborhood, and they're walking every day together. Even though they're staying socially distanced, they're able to, you know, they're all mothers, and they're all, you know, mo most of them had big careers. She was a CFO. So um, just to find some sense of community. I was on a pod, uh, not a podcast, a webinar on Saturday morning with my church and my minister trying to bring people together. And um, so we have to find community where it, it's a basic human need to feel part of something bigger than yourself. So at the individual level, we have to take ownership for that and responsibility for that. Um, not to divert, but the Las Vegas shooter, you know, remember when we had that 150 person death, he was an accountant. He was my people. Hmm. 
he could not articulate his frustrations and they just built up and built up and built up and built up. And he would be one of the people that would be at risk for isolating, whether that was a mental illness issue that had never arisen before or um, what we don't know what that is, but whatever causes people to isolate, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. So for, so at the individual level, we have to not help people not isolate, call them out, you know, take them for a walk or whatever. And then at the leadership, like if you're a team leader or a manager that now hosting and facilitating all of these these Zoom meetings, I've been telling them they have to just be so much more thoughtful. If they used to take 30 seconds to prepare, well, then let's try to get them to three minutes. And if they were taking three minutes, let's try to get them to 30 minutes. How can we um, interact on Zoom with each person individually and give them what they need? Is it recognition? Is it, I call it an acknowledgement? Mm -hmm. Is it more clarity about what we need? Is it more time for Q&A? I think that's the biggest thing. I see the biggest source of stress in the, in the world today at home and at work is unnegotiated expectations. And not everybody's comfortable, even in a face-to-face -face or a Zoom, saying, wait a minute, I'll go, let's go back. I have a question about that. So we have to create that dead space on a conference call or on a Zoom so if somebody can bubble up, that frontline accountant can bubble up and say, uh, now that just doesn't make sense to me. How are we going to meet that deadline? Let's talk more about that. So um, some, some language that I love, and I've used it since I was an entry-level auditor, and I got to, uh, some people to admit they had committed fraud, and I, nobody knew there was fraud there. Um, but uh, just um, I kept saying over and over, I'm confused. Can, can you help me understand? So I, I try to encourage everybody I know to use that language to go to people and when they're, when they're either isolating or withdrawn or clammed up or not producing and, and just say, I'm, I'm confused. Help me understand what's going on with you. And it's That's you. That's a great, wonderful phrase because going back to our earlier reference to judgment, it, it has no judgment. No judgment, right. I'm the one. Ownership, right. I'm confused, right? And you're asking them to help you. Right. Help so me I, that's a beautiful phrase. I hope everyone writes it down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm confused. Help me understand. I got people to admit they committed fraud when we didn't know that we didn't suspect fraud. But I just kept going back and saying that same thing over and over. Mm -hmm. And they finally admitted it. So, um, so those are some things off the top of my head and then finding ways for people to celebrate uh, as soon as like I have a client who just, um, she's a president of a startup. And so they went from four employees to eight employees in, within a month. So they did go out, but they did it like three o'clock in the afternoon when there wouldn't be a lot of people at a restaurant. They went to a restaurant with a big patio. They spread out a little bit. So we have to find those ways to bring people together again. Mm -hmm. soon, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this isn't going to be over anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the situation where parents are trying oh. to juggle their work and their children going back to school virtually. What are you advising or how are you helping folks in those situations? Well, my niece just shared with me that her husband was telecommuting because of her career. She was a, uh, a, doing a clerkship with a federal judge, so they had to relocate for that for two years. And they have a three-year-old. She got pregnant um, the summer between uh, her second and third year of law school. 
And she, at Christmas time, she delivered this baby. Now he's three or almost three. And um, so her husband was trying to get eight hours worth of his work done while that baby took his long nap every afternoon, and, you know, for like a two and a half hour nap. He, that's all he could do because, um, you know, you can't leave a two and a half year old unsupervised. No. So it's been so difficult. I know so many people already before the pandemic, they were, this is invention of these darn smartphones has made people feel like they had to be available 24 seven. So they were putting their kids to bed. They're working all day in, in an office and then they were putting their kids to bed after supper and baths and whatever story time and homework, whatever. And then they were going back to work. And so I think that people have been losing sleep. So I've been trying to encourage people to negotiate those expectations so clearly and so specifically and have very clear measurements and metrics and make sure that the work is divided among a whole team of people. And even before the pandemic, especially in technology where a lot of things people are working 24 seven, it's just the nature of their job, but women can't do that if you have children, young children at home. So I've encouraged people to do job sharing, try to find a way they could do a job sharing role. So I could be available 12 hours a day you know, three hours here, four hours there, whatever, and then find somebody else that can be available in those windows or, you know, say, I'm going to be available 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You're going to be available 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So I think job sharing is the future for um, these environments where people are, are really needed 24-7. But it's not, it's not feasible that, to think that anybody could um, work under these constraints for the long, long term. It's not, it's going to help. It's going to hurt the family. It's going to hurt the mental health of everybody. So it's going to hurt productivity in the workplace. But so many of my clients are giving up their office space. Yes. Um, before we go there, because I think that's a really interesting area to, to visit too, in terms of the dramatic changes we're seeing there. But one of the things you just mentioned, this idea of, you know, negotiating, clarifying, it all goes back to self-care, mm -hmm. you know, Good to point. look yes. at what was it I need in order to not just take care of myself, but to be as productive and as strong a contributor as possible. Yes. And I think yes. I'm saying this for the people that tend to be hesitant about asking for what they need. And yourself, what happens when people just keep going and they don't, they are reactive right. and they're stuffing it and they're not addressing it. Right. Only well, it's going to, it's going to come out one way or another. That's why they call them emotions. You're going to emote them one way or another. You're going to, going to be like my dad being real passive aggressive or make snide remarks, or you're going to, um, you know, hold up a project or hold up a team. I worked with an IT guy early in my career. He would hold up resources. You couldn't get any resources that you needed unless you played his little games and stuff. So um, everybody needs energy and we will get that energy any way we can get it. So if we're not getting out in nature, if we're not spending high quality time by ourselves to think strategically, if we're not spending high quality time with our loved ones, we're not getting our heart rate elevated, then we will get energy by being difficult, difficult with our family or difficult with our, our co colleagues at work. But another really great phrase I have is, um, I just realized this won't work for me. What would work for me is X, oh. Y, and Z. 
So again, no judgment. I'm not saying you idiot. I can't possibly do that by that deadline, which is what I used to, you know, in my head. I'd say, oh, that's a great idea. You idiot. <laughs> with my boss. So if people can just say, I, I just realized, you know, I can take, I, could, I might not be able to say it in the first meeting when my boss outlines the project and the timeframes and everything in, the, in my role and Bob's role and Betty Sue's role. But over time, I can, you know, over the next few days or the next few weeks, I can go back to him or her and say, I just, I just realized it's not going to work for me to have to meet these expectations. I'd like to negotiate those. What would work for me better is blah, blah, blah. I love that, Catherine. That, uh, it's so powerful because you're, you're not just, you don't come across as a complainer. Mm-hmm. You have thought it through, and while you're realizing this won't work, you're not just saying, I refuse to do that. Right. You're, you're describing an alternative that would work better for you. So yes. you're doing that self-care yes. and also taking the other person's needs into consideration. Yes. You're yes. giving some gold phrases here. We're actually coming up close to time, so just quickly talk about this whole thing of office space versus working at home. Well, I've been home-based for 25 years. Well, almost 25 years. As soon as I became full-time self-employed in January 97, I became home-based. And I've loved every minute of it. And I've loved this year even more because it's been so simple, not getting all dressed up to go to the client's offices, not traveling. So, um, so I think it's the future. I think people are seeing that um, they don't need to pay for all those big leases and big corporate environments. Um, I'm, you know, there are some people that have to have an office, but not everybody. Uh, and unfortunately, that's going to hurt the commercial real estate industry. But I'm, I'm just kind of naively hoping that they can figure out a way to convert um, some of those office buildings to low-income housing, <laughs> what we're so desperate for. Yeah, well, it goes back to um, opportunities for you where you help yeah. these companies innovate. Right. That's you know, a good this point. is the reality that you're facing rather than burying your head in the sand or denying it, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing here's an opportunity for us to redefine ourselves. Right. And redefine right. the space that we currently lease. I live in a very urban environment in central Phoenix, and there's two, uh, one um, used to be a um, telephone company building, and and it was converted about 15 years ago to Kite and Condos, and now they're doing another office building. It's an intersection of Central and Camelback, which are big streets in Vicksburg, and of course, it's going to be higher end, but there's ways to do that for single room occupancy, and there's lots of ways to do that for poor people, so... Or or just the working poor, people that are working but just don't make enough money to own their own home. Right. Well, some takeaways to me from what you've been describing include this whole idea of taking a fresh look at things. Mm -hmm. The whole thing of taking the um, attitude of a scientist where you're running experiments. And scientists are trained not to judge the outcomes they get, it's simply to look at that as data and then make decisions about the next thing from that. And so I love your approach there. It's so healthy. The, the, um, the, the quotes, you know, the things that you gave as far as tips of what to say are also real nuggets for people to take away and be able to start using in their own words. But the words you provided are so 
simple yet profound in terms of the reaction that you would get from the other person versus a more aggressive or a more passive approach that doesn't address your need. Therefore, you're really not being honest. Right. And see, what we do is we step over, step over, step over, step over, step over, and then we blow up. And then the damage is done. We just have to go get a different job. (laughs) We burn bridges. But if we can address it, maybe not in the first meeting, but, you know, two or three days later, I had time to sleep on this and think about it. And what I realized is this isn't going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a sane way of expressing yourself. Yeah. That is not tied, you're not getting emotional about it. And so the, the likelihood of someone being able to hear what you're saying is greatly enhanced. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's and that's awesome. all it is, is creating an environment where everybody can bring their best self. That's why the title of my book is um, Alignment for Success, Bring Out the Best in Yourself, Your Teams, and Your Company. We just want everybody to bring their yeah. best self. Well, hold that book up again okay, and, and tell people how they can get that and connect with you Okay, more about your services. You can connect with me through my website, Halpin Company. Notice how Halpin is spelled H-A-L-P-I-N. Companies all spelled out, dot com. There's a, a way to get the free ebook of the nine ha- um, time management habits there. There's a way to contact me to schedule a complimentary confidential consultation. And then that uh, ebook, if you don't want to, uh, get it for free. If you want to pay $4.99, you can get that in this book for less than $20 on Amazon. But notice how Catherine is spelled. It's kind of a funny spelling. So alignment for success. If you Google that, or if you Google the respond, not react playbook, they'll come up and they're both available on Amazon. And this is a $15 purchase and the ebook is like $4.99 or something cheap like that. So thank you for asking me. And then I'm all over LinkedIn. So find me on LinkedIn. Yes, that's how you and I connected, isn't it? Yes, which is crazy when we know some people there. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for remembering that, Meredith. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity. It's so great. Oh, well, you've shared so many great ideas and approaches to interacting with others that value yourself as well as the other person Mm -hmm. and therefore enhance the relationship. And in a work environment, that can only lead to you know, greater levels of productivity and performance. And innovation. Catherine, thank you. Thank you, my friend. I look forward to staying connected. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com to learn how our tools can increase your impact with clients and expand your business. And while you're there, Grab our free ebook, The Five Secrets to Getting Better at Anything. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell. Make it a great day.